The Accounting Insider with Kim Nitschke. Welcome back to The Accounting Insider. I'm Andrew Montessi with Kim Nitschke. And Kim, I think the podcast is going really well. Um, I think... Do we say that you're going viral yet? Are we at that point? I think that's too early to say that, but uh, I'm just uh, amazed and overwhelmed by the response we've had. It's been fantastic. Yeah, we've been getting quite a few listens and a bit of a feature in uh, the iTunes store, so that's great. And we're going to continue today with our conversation about property because it's been getting great feedback and obviously a lot of people are interested in progressing in this space. So we're going to talk about common mistakes, Kim. And um, there are obviously an almost endless list of mistakes that people often make. Um, you know, you yourself have obviously made mistakes along the way, as we've discussed. But perhaps to get started, let's look at um, the problem of having debt on the wrong property. Yeah, okay. So obviously the um, interest that you're paying on debt, which is associated with any rental property, is tax deductible. and the interest that you're paying on a principal place of residence or the house that you live in is not tax deductible. So it's really important to get the debt on the correct property so you can claim the maximum tax deduction. So obviously in a perfect world you'd have heaps of debt on rental properties and no debt on your principal place of residence. So as you're sort of working out if you're going to pay down debt, which one should I pay down? Obviously the one to pay down would be the non-deductible debt on your principal place of residence. So to get to the point where you don't end up with all the debt on the wrong property, how do you go about preventing that? Do you need to get, is that where you should get the right advice from say your accountant prior to purchasing that next property? Yeah, that's very important at every stage along this whole process. Um, But, you know, I think that there's options um, that you can make yourself as you're um, going down the track and that's, like setting up a principal and interest loan on your house and interest only on rental properties. And if you know you come into a windfall or whatever, which debt am I going to smash down first? Those sorts of things. The other thing, there, there are other clever ways of doing it. And you know one of those would be having a um, offset account so that if you change your mind on something and you're parking some cash in there, and you want to move from your principal place of residence into your rental property, then that gives you flexibility to be able to reshuffle the, the, the amounts sitting on the loans around. That's great advice. Um, another common mistake, and you just flagged it before, but misconceptions about tax and, and you know the, the expected benef- tax benefits that a property investor is going to get. Yeah, so I think that this is um, a common um, misconception that if say I'm talking to you and we're having a beer and we're having a chat and I'm saying I'm going to get a $5,000 tax deduction for this um, new piece of equipment or whatever it is that I've just bought and then I think everyone thinks that that means oh the tax department's going to give me a $5,000 check so this item that I've just paid that money for is free but it's not actually dependent, well that's not the way it works quite frankly. So you, if, if you're gonna get a full tax deduction for let's just say $5,000, then you will only see whatever your tax rate is, 30 or 40% of that $5,000 um, come off your tax bill at the end of the year or end up as a refund in your bank account at the end of the year. Okay, there's also 
confusion um, or issues around fixed versus variable rates? Okay, so this is another mistake that I've made. Um, I think it was back around 09 before the GFC. I think we had nine or 11 consecutive rate rises in a row and interest rates were up around low 9%. And I was thinking that they were actually gonna go into the um, 11, 12, 13, 14% mark. So what I did, and I remember it was around Melbourne Cup Day, um, I rang up my bank and I said, I wanna fix the rate at, you know, 8.35%. Uh, so uh, they charged me a fee and we locked in and I was thinking it was three for three years and I was thinking, right, beautiful. Um, I'm set, I can relax now knowing that my debt's locked in and those future rate rises, I'm not gonna be paying for them. Anyway, what happened was overnight, rates tumbled and I was left <laughs> paying a fixed rate in the low eights and it was just a disaster because I rang up my bank manager like a couple of days later and I said, oh, you know those forms that I sent in the other day, can I just sort of um, get out of that deal? And they said, uh, leave it with us, we'll ring you back and we'll tell you how much it'll cost to get out of that deal. And they rang me back and they said it was going to cost $57,000. Oh, and I couldn't believe it. So I just ended up, you don't obviously have to pay that, I just stayed in that fixed rate environment for the duration of the loan, or the duration of the term, which was three years, and paid my dues that way, which was less painful. But ever since that point, I've always thought um, that provided there's an incentive to go variable, like the variable rate is lower than the fixed rate, I'm always happy to take the punt and go variable. Speaking of banks, uh, a common mistake is loyalty to banks. Yeah, there's a common misconception that, you know, I've been with ANZ Bank for 20 years, they'll look after me. Well, it's not really the case these days. There is a certain, um, advantage that if you're applying for a loan and you've already got a credit card with that bank, then they will um, give you some sort of um, introductory incentive or you know knock a bit off the interest rate just for the fact that you're an existing client. But really in these days, in this day and age, things are so competitive that you really need to be re-evaluating your loan every two to three years just to make sure that you're with the best um, you've got the best deal, that your circumstances may have changed, so you may need to look at a loan which suits your circumstances better. Just, I think that it's always a good idea to change on a regular basis and not be a lifelong customer with one particular bank. You would see that firsthand as well with your clients because you do some broking. And um, I mean, I can only imagine how many different products and different options there are at the moment. It's a really competitive space. Oh, absolutely. Like, so we deal with about 33 banks. So every day there's new deals coming up. Um, banks are re-evaluating uh, how aggressive they're going to be in the market. They're putting up these deals that are too good to be too good to refuse. You can't be across it all. You've got to really use a broker to understand exactly where it's best for you to fit into that whole mix. And the other thing is that it really doesn't cost that much and it's not a huge inconvenience to move from one bank to another. And often there's incentives to encourage you to do so. Yeah, I'd imagine if you're jumping across to another bank that they're going to be doing everything they can to make it as easy as possible for you. Yeah, like um, recently I moved um, to the ANZ again uh, and there were incentives like if I moved by a certain month, every loan I moved across I got um, $1,500 um, contribution towards valuation of property, You know, which is just crazy because if I would have stayed with my old bank and got um, 
valuations done, they would have charged me for them. <laughs> so there's an incentive to move. Yeah, absolutely. Another common issue is rushing in to buy. Um, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, the investor feels like there's a sense of urgency about buying this property or there's some sort of emotional attachment to it. Yeah, so this is a common issue that I see um, with a, l- a lot of customers. Uh, they sort of feel as though once they've got their finance approved, there's pressure on them to go out and rush and buy something straight away. But really, you know, only fools rush in, unfortunately. And the wrong decision can end up costing you four or five years because you can buy the wrong property, it doesn't go up in value, and then you sell it four or five years later when you're sick of um, holding onto that property and realising that it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and you get your money back, less stamp duty and agent's fees. So, you know, that whole exercise, I see time and time again, costing people money. You've got to really, when you're buying a property, in my opinion, put in your offer and be prepared to lose it. You know, you can't be emotionally watching the phone, waiting for the agent to ring you back, ringing the agent every five minutes saying, you know, have you heard anything? You've got to really put it in, um, mentally let it go and walk away from it and then have the agent come back to you at some later date. The best deals I've seen are where you put in an offer and it's a lowball offer and it's just sitting there and the agent will ring you six months later and say, oh, uh, are you still happy to uh, go ahead with that offer on such and such a property? And often you're saying, well, I can't remember doing that. Which one was it? And you go, oh, that's right. Yes, yes. And you, you know, often you're the last man standing and you get an absolute steal because everyone else has pulled out of the race and it's taken that long for the vendor to come to terms with the fact that the property's not worth what they thought it was. Mm-hmm. So you just got to sort of be, be prepared. Patient. Yeah, be, pre- be patient and prepared to wait. And I'd imagine there's advantages to being opportunistic as well. I mean, you mentioned waiting six months for that call from the uh, slightly desperate agent. Um, I'd imagine that also other opportunities coming your way um, could also benefit you. Yeah, yeah. So um, often with distressed sales or mortgagee sales or whatever, it takes a hell of a long time for people to actually um, process the transaction and get everyone to basically agree to it or force them to agree to it if they uh, are not agreeing to it on their own free will. So, you know, I've seen situations where people have got absolute bargains just because they've stuck to their guns, they haven't gone back and upped their offer, and they've just sat and waited, a bit like Steve Bradbury sort of <laughs> scenarios. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I can tell a story where I bought a property, Commonwealth Bank had valued it for 195000 uh, It was a divorce, unfortunately, but we put in an offer of $50,000 less than that, and the dad was the actual, uh, sorry, the yeah, so the, the vendor's dad was selling the property and he said the offer was so low that he wasn't actually even going to submit it. So, you know, just sort of, I guess that was trying to put as much pressure on me to increase my offer, but I didn't, I just stood my ground. And then, you know, 24 hours later, he said, he rang me and he said, look, I don't agree with this and I can't believe that they've done this, but they've accepted your offer. <laughs> and I've still got the property today. Wow. Mm. Interestingly, you see chasing rent returns as a potential mistake as well. Maybe tell us about that. Yeah, okay, so this is a fundamental mistake I made, number one. Um, my mentor at the time was a big property investor and he said to me, Kim, look, I wouldn't 
uh, mind buying any property at all, a shed on a block of land in the middle of you know Timbuktu that's giving me a great rental return. So I sort of took that to the extreme and went and found um, some units in a town on in the outer suburbs of Adelaide that were showing uh, $120 a week return on a $60,000 investment. And I chased the rental return but didn't take into account the big picture and looking at what was actually going to happen and what the fundamentals were on that property in terms of growth and capital gains. And lo and behold, it went nowhere and my tenants moved out after about six months. So I was left holding a property that was empty and wasn't going up in value. Now I've changed my tack completely. So I'm chasing the capital gains, getting my fundamentals right. And that ultimately adds a lot more to your net worth a lot more quickly than if you're just chasing rental returns. And really, I found with looking at rental returns, they are important, but only from the point of view of me managing to be able to service my debt. I'm happy to pay, pay losses. Uh, I have to accumulate losses because I'm getting tax benefits with that. But um, the rental, you know, the return game that um, a lot of people chase, sort of, I've found that that means that you end up buying in these. Um, outback country towns and as soon as all the miners leave or the workers leave you, you end up taking a list a loss on the um, on, on the uh, capital gain side of things when you go to sell if you're forced to sell it and you get sick of um, having no returns or um, you know you're sick of um, just sitting there for the rental returns okay now you don't use a property manager why <laughs> well um, <laughs> I'm very frugal, <laughs> but uh, I, I a just true accountant. <laughs> true accountant, accounting one hundred and one is you know watch. It's much easier, um, you know. It's much more important to watch how you're spending your money than it is to focus on earning your money. So, m my mindset is that really um, anyone can manage a property, and in fact, in a, in South Australia, and I'm sure this is. Um, true interstate you ring a toll-free number they send you a landlord's kit and there's a helpline explaining to you if there's a tricky situation with your tenant what you should do so there's a massive support network there which sort of encourages you to be able to do it yourself and really I've found that I've developed the best relationships with my tenants and I also have this um, mindset that friends don't damage other friends property so if you become good friends with your tenants it's highly unlikely they're going to trash the place and I just find that if I manage a property that I'm the first person they ring if something goes wrong and I want to know about it straight away I don't want to have a sort of a filtered down effect coming via the property manager and the other thing is um, property managers aren't cheap mm. I'd imagine some people have a bit of a fear like oh if I don't have a property manager then I'm going to be dealing with all these little complaints and issues but I think you've made that important point that if you have a good relationship with your tenants it's much different yeah and and I'm also like if, if I'm not chasing rental returns I'm not putting it up five bucks or ten ten bucks every six or twelve months and that pisses off tenants yeah. so I find I never increase the rent and they stay forever and after a point in time like two or three years they don't ring you about the little drip, dripping tap out in the backyard because they're thinking that, um, you know, <laughs> any touch point with the landlord is an opportunity for them to put the rent up. <laughs> so, so you actually find that you get massive mileage out of your tenants if you treat them nicely and you give them a good deal on the rent. Mm. And at the end of the day, 
like I'm saying, like, the property's doubling in value every seven years or 10 years, and you're, all you're doing is just shuffling money around to be able to service the debt. Yeah. You also see that being a nervous investor is a problem. Yeah, it is. And you see this time and time again. You know, like the beginning of the year, we were having um, financial crises in China. Now, a lot of people jump to conclusions and think, well, if the stock market's cra- crashing, that's going to filter through to real estate. Uh, really, if you're in this for the long term, just more or less keep your head in the sand and don't worry about where the property prices are going up, whether they've gone down. You know, I think there's... there's uh, press coverage at the moment that Sydney prices, property prices have fallen. At the end of the day, they're on a gradual, uh, if you've got all your fundamentals right and you've got the right property, they're on a fun, they're on a long-term gradual increase. So don't be trying to get an update or evaluation on your property every single day. Just forget about it. And <laughs> like, don't be a nervous investor where you think, well, if the property market's come off 10%, maybe I should think about selling. Maybe it's going to go down. Just Carry on regardless. I think also for the sake of your your own mental health. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if, if you're following the news stories, you know every day is a different news story. You know, property's booming in value. Property's about to. It's all about to go pear shaped. You'd be, you'd never sleep a wink if you followed every news story. No, th- that's it. That's just um, brought another point to mind. Like with the whole uh, crisis in the U.S. with the property crash, if you look at what happened here, we actually came out of it totally unscathed maybe it knocked a bit off the top of the property prices initially but really um, from a rental point of view rent was maintained interest rates tumbled and property prices remained pretty constant so as a property investor through that whole US crisis property crisis we actually came out of it better off than you know than we ever thought we would have I love your thoughts on insurance (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I think it's just, it's a bit like you generally. It goes against the grain a little bit. Uh, yeah, look, insurance is important. It has its place. However, I got to a point where I was sick of writing out um, checks for insurance that I never used. So I sort of adopted a self-insurance policy uh, about uh, 15 years ago. So I do insure what I've got to insure, but I always take... A minimalistic approach so that if it is insured and it burns down or whatever I'm going to um, be sort of shortchanged by it but on the on the flip side of that the money I've saved over the years is thousands and thousands of dollars and the other the other point to note is that if I can get away without insuring something I probably will um, because I'm sick and tired of hearing stories from customers where they have had some disaster run with a tenant or a hot water service blowing the roof or whatever but for some unbelievable reason the insurance company has not paid out on the claim and they've had insurance thinking they're covered and they haven't been able to use the damn thing well we're seeing in the press at the moment a lot of um, issues with insurers and you know they're talking about a potential royal commission and all sorts because they make it so difficult um, for clients when it comes to paying out. We're talking clients who've been with the same insurer for decades, spent thousands upon thousands of dollars, and when it comes time uh, to get a payout, all of a sudden there's some you know piece of fine print where they get knocked back on. So I'd also imagine that when you weigh up 
the cost of insurance over the course of a few years versus the cost of paying to actually fix an issue with a house or a tenant or whatever that you'd still be out in front oh yeah so you know i haven't escaped um unscathed i've had um, properties broken into all my copper pipes stolen from offices and you know, I, I haven't been able to make a claim, but I've got a plumber in the next day, fixed it all up, and it's cost, you know, five or six hundred bucks, which is probably less than my policy would have cost. Mm. <laughs> and it's fixed straight away, and I don't have to sit there for months arguing about a, a, a an insurance check from with an insurance company. Great. Well, I think we've smashed through a lot of content in a pretty brief time. A, lo- a lot of mistakes, a lot of lessons learned. Thanks for listening. Before we finish this episode up, if you are enjoying Accounting Insider, please leave us a review. It really helps. Um, it really helps us gain more listeners who we can share our great information with. So tap on Accounting Insider, hit five stars preferably, and uh, give us your feedback. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again at our next episode. You've been listening to the Accounting Insider Podcast with Kim Nitschke. 